One of my favorite Christmas hymns growing up, it got me all excited this morning when I saw Ethan start to downstroke the tune, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That was at the top of my list growing up. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth, Mercy Mild. I'm not going to sing it. God and Sinners Reconciled. As a child, I think it was just the sound of that song that I appreciated. It's up-tempo nature. It's built-in cheeriness. And as those first notes were struck, I knew that we were in the middle of the Christmas season. And I was ready to, as, as they would say, get into the Christmas spirit. I didn't know what it meant to hark. In fact, I probably don't even know now what it means to hark. Um, I didn't know what mercy mild meant. I knew that the newborn king was a reference to the baby Jesus. But I hadn't the faintest idea what that had to do with God and sinners being reconciled or how that related to this little baby in the manger in the nativity scene. All I knew when I heard that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was that it was starting to look a little bit like Christmas, at least in our Southern California sort of way, Uh, that it was starting to smell a lot like Christmas, and it was going to start sounding a lot like Christmas, and that most importantly, we were getting really close to that big day, Christmas Day. That day when when family members would start showing up with truckloads of gifts and treats, where we'd be eating a whole lot of good food in short order, Uh, when wrapping paper would be soon flying around the living room. And then after that, we'd eat a bunch of dessert, and it was delicious. And after that, everybody would go home. And then after everybody went home, they would leave our house empty and full of echoes and that feeling of, well, that went by way too fast. And back to that feeling of malaise that it's going to be another 364 days before I experience that feeling of euphoria again. Well, what I was missing as that child from that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, though I didn't know it at the time, was just how profound its lyrics were and are. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, and of course, God and sinners being reconciled. And it's that last lyric, that lyric about God and sinners being reconciled, which is at the heart of the passage of scripture that we'll be studying here this morning, this Christmas morning. For those of you who are visiting, we're now deep into this Christmas series called Peace on Earth, which is a five-part series, and you're in message number four. We have been going through the promise of peace. That was Isaiah 9, verse 6. Words that were written 750 years before the birth of our Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. A prophetic word about the Messiah who would come. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. After that, we saw the proclamation of peace in Luke 2, verse 14, as angels Proclaim to a lowly group of shepherds in Bethlehem that the long-awaited, the long-promised Prince of Peace had arrived on the scene of history. And then last night on Christmas Eve, we spent some time looking at the provision of peace from the book of Colossians, where we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided peace to his followers through, Colossians 1.19 says, the blood of his cross. And today now, on Christmas morning, We're going to look at the purpose of peace, which we'll do as we work our way through Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open with me to Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, 
Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So God promised peace, God proclaimed peace, God provided peace, and today, as we're going to see, there's a purpose to this peace that God has provided. And why did we need his peace? Why do we need his peace? What peace has God offered us? What benefits attach to those who now have this peace? These are the questions that we're going to be grappling with this morning as we work our way through these two verses, Romans 5, 1 and 2. By the way, I've broken this text, uh, these two verses, into three parts this morning. In our text, we're going to see links between, number one, peace and our justification, number two, peace and our position, and then number three, peace and our exaltation. So if you're a note taker, those will be the three headings for this morning's sermon. Peace and our justification, peace and our position, peace and our exaltation. Let's take them one by one, starting with peace and our justification. Look at Romans 5.1. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll start our time in God's word this morning with that very first word, therefore. That word is a connecting particle, un in the Greek, and its function is pretty simple. It's linking what Paul is about to say in the words that we're going to look at this morning with what he said thus far in this letter, meaning in the first four chapters of Romans, which, which many have considered to be Paul's magnum opus. And by way of review, what has Paul been covering in these first four chapters of Romans? Well, he's covered quite a bit. He's addressed his apostolic credentials. He's laid out his desire to visit these fellow believers there in Rome. He's identified the gospel of grace, Romans 1.16, as being the central theme of this letter. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's pointed to the wrath of God, which hangs over the heads of those who reject the inherent knowledge of God that resides in every man and woman's heart. Though they suppress the truth, he says in Romans 1.18, in unrighteousness. He's already, Paul has, highlighted this multi-tier decline into abject godlessness that he had witnessed in his day and which we're getting a taste of in our day as well. In fact, why don't you look with me at Romans 1.21. If you go back a few pages in the book of Romans, look at what he says in Romans 1.21. It gives us a taste of Paul's concern over the godlessness that had crept into the culture of the day. Romans one twenty one says, For even though, he's speaking of the unbeliever here, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So he's describing the downgrade culturally that was happening then, and is happening today. 
As we keep marching through Romans, he's described how the Jewish people of his day, though instructed by the law, were equally with the Gentiles under the judgment of God. He says in Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous, not even one. He says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, meaning Jew and Gentile alike, and have fallen short of the glory of God. And to those who might quibble with Paul's premise and seek to self-justify through their efforts to adhere to the Old Testament law, Paul makes very clear that any attempts to comply with the law will not ultimately lead to one being justified in the eyes of a thrice holy God. In fact, Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And that's the key. Faith. Justification. As we're about to see, that's the word Paul uses here in Romans 5, to be justified. Justification. Justification is, is this legal declaration that an otherwise guilty sinner is now right with God. And justification comes not through the law. Justification comes not through deeds. Justification comes not through good works. Rather, one is justified by faith. And Paul builds that out further in Romans chapter 4 as we pull in back into Romans 5 here. In Romans 4, Paul goes through this exercise of explaining how Abraham, the father of nations, an Israelite, a Hebrew, was not justified by his works. He wasn't justified by being an A-plus Old Testament saint. No, rather, Abraham was justified on account of his faith. That's what it says in Romans 4.3. As Paul here in Romans 4.3 is quoting from Genesis 15.6, where he says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that brings us back to our text here this morning, Romans 5.1, where Paul, having just explained this concept of justification by faith, and having illustrated his point through this example of Abraham, now says, therefore. And we have a few different therefores in the book of Romans. There's one at Romans 8.1, which says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's another one at Romans 12.1, where he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, and then goes on to exhort them to present their bodies as living sacrifices. But this is the one we're focusing on, Romans 5.1, where he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul here is saying, I've just explained how one is justified by faith. Now let me explain to you some of the outworkings of a person who has been justified. So let's move on to the next part of Paul's thought, though, here in verse 1, where he says, having been justified by faith. That word justified, dikeao, is in a a Greek tense which, which points to something that's already been accomplished. It's not something that's in process. It's not something that could happen. There are no conditions or strings attached here. No, what's being described here when Paul uses the word justified is he's describing something that's already been done, something that's already occurred. But what is it that has already been done? What is it that's already occurred? What is it that's already been accomplished? What occurs when a person experiences justification? Well, the person who has been declared justified has gone from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. 
That person has gone from being a child of darkness to a, a child of light. That person has gone from being a slave of sin to a slave of Christ. And this change, this transformation, this moment of justification occurred in an instant, once and for all, at a specific point in time. That point in time being the very moment that the individual placed his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, justification is about a change in one's position or status. It's a once and forever declaration settled in the courts of heaven that the unjust and wretched sinner is now viewed as being just and righteous in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. And how does that work? Why? Well, verse 1 says that justification is by faith. Faith. What kind of faith? You know, a lot of people identify themselves as people of faith. The 9-11 hijackers would have called themselves people of faith. David Koresh and his followers at Waco called themselves people of faith. 1.3 billion deceived Roman Catholics on this planet are people of faith. Joe Biden calls himself a person of faith. Donald Trump called himself a person of faith. I guarantee you that the 2024 presidential candidates will both call themselves people of faith. God-hating pagans will say that they're just trying to keep the faith as they experience various difficulties in this life. See, simply saying that you have faith or that you're a person of faith is meaningless. That faith that you claim to have must be attached to a proper object an object that is true, an object that has value, an object that is worthy of faith for your faith to do you any good. Having faith in a false God, having faith in a faulty or false religious system, having faith in a lie only takes a person that much further away from the truth and that many more steps away from a true concept of salvation and only that many more steps toward the precipice of a real eternal hell. So what kind of faith is Paul referring to here? When he says, having been justified by faith, he's speaking of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he, the Lord, can forgive a wretched sinner. Only he, the Lord, can cleanse a person of their sin. Only he, the Lord, is the way, the truth, and the life. And only his righteousness can be credited to a sinner's account. And only through him can a person have access to and a relationship with the living God. It's through that kind of faith which results in one being justified, where that sinner is now looked at through the lens of the perfect and righteous sin-bearing Savior who took the wrath of God on our behalf. To paraphrase that hymn, before the throne of God above, God looks on him, meaning Christ, and pardons us. In other words, a person doesn't work their way toward justification. A person doesn't earn justification. A person doesn't grow in their justification. There are no works involved. There is no self-effort involved. There's no human enterprise or ingenuity or inventiveness involved. Rather, a person is justified. They're once and forever justified because they've put their faith not in self, 
but instead because they've put their faith in the once and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. They're justified by believing what God has done in Christ and by believing in Jesus Christ, and that's it. That's the wonder and the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel, the gospel that that baby in the manger would one day go on to proclaim. A person is justified by believing in Jesus Christ. All right, all of that, all of what I've said so far has been connected with that one word, justified. So much more could be said, so much more has been said. In fact, entire treatises and dissertations and theological tomes have been written on this word, justification. We need to move on. Suffice it to say for now, though, that justification... If you lock in on on one definition, justification refers to that one time, singular, moment in time, legal declaration that a person who once was in opposition to God now has favor with God and is no longer at enmity with God and is in the family of God because of the sufficient sacrifice of the Son of God. We'll move on. Looking on into verse 1, he says, having been justified by faith, here we go, we have peace with God. Uh, many years ago in his commentary on Romans called The Gospel of Grace, Alva McLean painstakingly laid out 12 of the benefits listed here in Romans chapter 5 alone that go along with these words, having been justified by faith. I won't go through all 12 here this morning, but among the 12 that McLean listed were these these benefits of being justified by faith. One, he said, being justified by faith, we're able to persevere in the midst of tribulation. That sounds a lot like what we've been studying in the book of James of late. Being justified by faith, we have joy. Being justified by faith, we have hope. Being justified by faith, we experience the love of God. Being justified by faith, we have the Holy Spirit. Being justified by faith, we will be spared God's wrath. Being justified by faith, we do not fear God's judgment, but instead we rejoice that we've been reconciled to him. Now, those are great insights. Those are powerful insights from McLean about these benefits that are attached to being justified by faith. But putting our noses back in this text, I want us to look at that very first benefit of justification that Paul lists here as he's writing under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. He says, having been justified by faith, here it is, We have peace with God. There we have it. Peace with God. Uh, We're right back at the heart of this text. We're right back at the heart of what we've been looking at in this series. This concept of peace. And the peace that Paul speaks of here, irene in Greek, means something very specific. He's referring to the objective reality that people who once were at war with God, meaning everyone here on that side of the pulpit and on this side of the pulpit, without exception, has now been reconciled to God. Going back to the lyrics to the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, God and sinners are now reconciled. Now I recognize there may be some of you here this morning who are thinking, enemy of God? That's a little harsh. I don't know if I'd call myself an enemy of God or that I would have 
called myself an enemy of God. I don't know about that. I went to church as a kid, and I sang the hymns, and I ran in the Iwana circle, and I memorized the verses, and I sang in the choir, and I wrote my name in my Bible, and I attended, and I listened, and I was respectful. I never once fell asleep on a Sunday morning when the preacher was preaching. I shined my shoes and and pressed my suit each and every Saturday night. I carried my Bible in a case. I went to every church potluck. I went to every summer camp. I went to every winter camp. My parents took me to every prayer meeting. I always believed in God. I always believed there was a God. I never denied the existence of God. I was never like one of those lunatic, left-wing, purple-haired, pierced, tattooed, mad-at-their-father-and-mother types. That wasn't me. They're the real enemies of God. I've always been good with God. Now, this is me. Now, Jesse is speaking back to you. I get that there must be some sense of spiritual pride associated with thinking that you've always been good with God. And I get that what I'm saying right now might be rubbing up against your spiritual pedigree and the family that you were born into, and that might be causing a little bit of friction in your heart right now. I get that what I'm saying might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because with me, and forget me, Paul, stepping on your toes right now, you may need to rethink your faith. You may need to rethink whether the faith that you claim to have is mom's faith, dad's faith, grandpa's faith, or your faith. See, all of us have to reconcile our experiences with Scripture. And what Scripture teaches is that whether or not you feel like you've ever been an enemy of God, the reality is you absolutely were, and some of you still are, enemies of God. So was I. So was everyone in this room at some point. And again, if you haven't truly given your life to Christ in repentance and faith, the reality is you remain his enemy today. This is not just me opining up here, by the way. Let's go to the scriptures. Scripture testifies to this fact that those who are outside of Christ, those who have not given their life to Christ, are his enemies. Romans 5.10 It says, we were reconciled to God through Christ, but before that, we were his enemies. On the page, you can look at Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It says there, we were enemies. Isaiah 59.2 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Romans 8, 6 and 7 says, The mind set on the flesh is death and is hostile toward God. The carnal mind, the the worldly mind, the ungodly mind is hostile to God. Isaiah 48, 22 says, There's no peace for the wicked. Not only that, though, even if you could somehow argue that you've never consciously been an enemy of God, Scripture, again, is very clear that God considers you to be his enemy before you come to faith in Christ. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Psalm 712 says, if a man does not repent, he, meaning God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Isaiah 13, 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord, that's a future day coming, is coming cruel and with fury and burning anger. Nahum 1, 2 says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. 
Now, now you might be saying, man, that's one grumpy pastor up there. Doesn't he know it's Christmas? Doesn't he know that that was the God of the Old Testament? Doesn't he know that God has really mellowed out now in the New Testament? He doesn't talk that way anymore, especially Jesus, because Jesus was all about love. Really? Consider Ephesians 5, 6, New Testament. The wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. Consider 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, New Testament. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The point is this. Before a man, before a woman, before a child is justified, that is, before they bow their knee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, they have no peace with God. They are at a state of enmity with God, and yes, they are enemies of God. No matter how clean and polished and religious they appear on the outside, in terms of their future eternal destination, let me put it this way. They're going to be sharing some, some common and rather fiery real estate with the likes of Hitler and Manson and Joseph Smith and Muhammad and various popes and other enemies of Christ and the gospel. Which is why Paul says here in Romans 5.1, why what he says here is so profound and powerful. That having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were once behind those enemy lines, unregenerate sinners, working against God and his purposes, even if we thought we were on his team, but we were actually serving our own purposes. But then when the Lord grabbed a hold of us, when he regenerated us, when he saved us, he gave us peace, peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result, we're no longer his enemies. That threat of the outpouring of his wrath on our heads no longer hangs over us. Rather, we've been justified, reconciled. We've been saved. The war is over. The rebellion has come to an end. The arms have been laid down. The white flag has been waved. And we are now inexplicably the object of God's favor and blessing. We have peace. Peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And note that it's peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't secured this peace through ourselves or our own merit or our own efforts. Instead, it's all of grace. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And and Paul, as he tends to do, focuses on all these different titles to bring out the fullness of the person of the Savior. He's Jesus, fully human. The son of Joseph and Mary, the one from Nazareth, the one who walked the earth, the one who lived and breathed and moved in the midst of other humans and experienced life just like you and I do, albeit without sin. He's the Christ, meaning the promised Messiah of Israel, the heir of David, the one who would one day establish his earthly reign here. He is Lord, it says, Kyrios. Uh, which, as we saw last week, is not merely a title of honor or esteem, but is a reference to the deity of Christ, meaning he is God. Not only that, though, in addition to all these titles and realities, Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says he's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our Savior, our hope, our King, or as he says in Ephesians 2.14, he is our peace. It's through him that we've been ushered into the presence of God the Father. 
It's through him that we have access to God the Father. It's through him that we've been reconciled as former enemies to God the Father. And it's through him that we now have peace with God the Father. Now, while Paul here, as I've already mentioned, is speaking to the objective truth of the objective peace that we have with God if we trust in Christ, the reality is that when a person comes to faith in the Lord, when they come to that place of having objective peace, solid ground before the Lord, the reality is that there is a subjective peace that goes along with that, a spiritual tranquility, a settledness of the soul that follows along. The person who has been justified through faith in Christ, reconciled to God, the person who has peace with God, they don't worry about where they're going when the cold death dew is beating on their brow. They don't worry about a little turbulence on the airplane and wonder where they'll go if this plane goes down. They don't worry and they don't stare at the ceiling fan like they used to at two in the morning and ask these existential questions like, why am I here and where am I going and what's the point of all of this? No, they have those answers, and they have this settled confidence, and it's rooted in faith about where all of this is headed, and it brings them great peace. What one theologian called a sweet quiet of the soul. They know that they know God the Father, who in Hebrews thirteen twenty is called the God of peace. They know that they know God the Father through the work of God the Son, who is called the Prince of Peace. And they know that they're now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who in Ephesians 4, 3, is called the Spirit of Peace. So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, anyone in here who's trusted in Jesus Christ, they're justified. They're the recipients of this legal declaration that the wall of hostility that once divided them and God has now been torn down. They now have peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our first heading for this morning, peace and our justification. The next one is peace and our position. That's our next heading. Look at Romans 5.2. After noting that we do have peace with God, we who are believers, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul goes on to say, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now take a look at those words. He says, we have obtained our introduction. That's sort of a mouthful. I'm going to try to explain a bit about what's going on here in the underlying Greek text. The word here for introduction is prosagoge. I won't try to spell it. It's going to take too long, and we all want to open presents, right? Prosagoge. It's a word that has a couple of powerful word pictures built into it. The first word picture that's built into this word, introduction, is this idea of ushering somebody into the presence of royalty. It's as if Paul here is saying, Jesus is ushering us, has ushered us, into the very presence of God. He opens the door for us to have access to the very king of kings. I can't help but think of that scene, I think it's a couple of times in the book of Esther, where whenever the golden scepter would go down, it would be pointed toward whoever was approaching the king. That meant that that person could now access, be introduced to the king. That's the idea here. Because of Christ, we have been ushered into, introduced into, the presence of royalty. The presence of, as 1 Timothy 1.17 calls him, the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. 
But that word, prosagoge, also has another picture built into it. We see that same word used in other ancient Greek texts to describe a harbor, that enclosed haven where ships would come in. I really appreciate what one commentator had to say about this aspect or this definition of this word introduction, this harbor definition. He says, if we take it this way, meaning harbor, it means that so long as we have tried to depend on our own efforts, we were tempest-tossed, like mariners striving with the sea, which threatened to overwhelm them completely. But now that we have heard the word of Christ, we have reached at last the haven of God's grace, and we know the calm of depending, not on what we can do for ourselves, but on what God has done for us. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, we have peace with God, as we've just seen. But we also have this introduction to God, meaning this ability to access God, this ability to approach God. Christ has led us into the presence of God, given us access to God, which gives us this ability to stand before God. In fact, that's what comes next here in verse 2. After noting that we've obtained our introduction by faith, it says, into this grace in which we stand. That's an interesting term, stand. Histomy is the word, and it means what it sounds like, to, to stand firm, to stand solid, to stand fixed. But it's interesting because Scripture is clear that there are certain people who will not be able to stand before God. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Or Psalm 1, verse 5 says, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And we know from Revelation chapter 6 that during the future period of tribulation and judgment that's coming on the earth, the wicked, after begging to have rocks and mountains fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, will say that the great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In other words, the wicked cannot and will not be able to stand in the presence of God. But the righteous and the redeemed, the justified and the cleansed, the forgiven and the pardoned, can stand in the presence of God. And not only that, not only can we stand, but we should stand and we should approach his throne boldly. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or Hebrews 10.19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. But how is that possible? And how has that happened? And why has that happened? This idea that we could suddenly stand in the presence of a holy God? Well, it goes back to Romans 5.1. We have been justified by faith. And because of that, we have standing through Christ before God. We are able to stand before God because our standing is in Christ Jesus. We stand in the one who sits, the one who sits today at the right hand of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is that standing maintained? Well, the answer is given to us here in verse 2. 
It's into this grace in which we stand. Meaning we don't stand in our own works. We don't stand in our own character. We don't stand in our own righteousness. No, it says we stand in his grace. It's grace in which we stand. We stand because we are these recipients of unmerited favor. This unfathomable grace which God saw fit to show us through Christ. The fact that we are justified. The fact that we've received this introduction, the fact that we have this access now, the fact that we have this ability to stand is not due to anything in us. We didn't open the way. We didn't introduce ourselves into this state. Rather, we were brought into this state by Christ. We stand in the grace of God, our justification, and we stand because of the grace of God. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say about this idea of access to God or standing in his grace. By the way, do you know that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through, I think he made it through 14 chapters of Romans. He preached those 14 chapters of Romans for 13 years, and he did it on Friday nights. Could you imagine trying to make your way through London? That's where he was doing his preaching on a Friday night. You've had a busy week, a busy work week. You you know, the weekend's finally arrived, and you're pining and pressing the gas pedal to get to the chapel to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones exposit Romans on a Friday night. They don't make them like they used to. You know, Gil's doing a Wednesday night Roman study. Maybe we'll figure out another book to do on a Friday night one of these years. All right, I get fired up about these things. Well, anyway, Lloyd-Jones, when he came to this text, Romans 5, he said this. Again, this, this idea of standing in grace. He says, this is the most marvelous thing of all about being a Christian. Our whole relationship to God is different. It has been entirely changed. It's like the case of a man who has spent his whole life out on the street, outside a great palace. Inside the palace, there are endless riches and wealth, and a great banquet is being given. He sees people enjoying themselves, but he's shivering out on the street, and he cannot partake. He has no right of entry. He's not fit to enter. Suddenly, In a miraculous and marvelous way, he is approached and invited to enter and provided with a festal garment. He is brought in and introduced and he takes his place and begins to partake of the feast of the riches of God's grace. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans 5 when he says we have access to God, that we're standing in grace. This is the grace in which we stand. We are children of the heavenly king. We have peace with him. We have access to him. We stand in his grace. So knowing that, we've got to go to him. Knowing this reality, we aren't to live like spiritual paupers. No, we're to go to him, to go to him in prayer, to approach him boldly to live boldly for him, to share the good news of his gospel widely, to read the scriptures he's given us excitedly. We're not to be apologetic Christians or doubtful Christians or hesitant Christians or uncertain Christians. No, we're to look to him, to boast in him, to stand in him, and as we'll see next week, next time, we're called to proclaim him. But now, and for our third point this morning, for you note-takers, It's peace and our exaltation. Peace and our exaltation. We are to exult in him. Look at the last few words of Romans 5.2. It says, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. 
That word exult literally means boast. It means to speak of oneself, to praise oneself. This is the literal root meaning, to boast in oneself, to congratulate oneself, to speak of oneself as glorious and blessed. Now, we know from other places in Scripture that that type of boasting is improper if it has an improper object. Romans 3.27 says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. 1 Corinthians 1.27 through 29 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the, the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And then a favorite around our house is Proverbs 27 two, let another praise you and not your own mouth. Or as it's rendered in the ESV, let the lips of another praise you. So boasting in ourselves, boasting in our own strengths and power and ability as mere human beings is prohibited in God's word. But not all boasting is ruled out. Since boasting in the Lord is marked in scripture as being one of the truest forms of worship. 1 Corinthians one thirty one. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Galatians 6.14 says, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory, same word, in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So, while the root meaning of this word is boast, the way the NAS has it rendered here, exult, is closer to the actual meaning. Paul here is saying we are to exult in something specific. Having been justified, now having peace, having this access, having this standing, we exult, he says, in hope of the glory of God. Now, when he speaks here of the hope of the glory of God, this is not a cross-your-fingers kind of hope. This is not a white-knuckling-it kind of hope. This is not a make-a-wish kind of hope. Rather, he's talking about a sure confidence, a settled and confident assurance, similar to what the author of Hebrews describes in Hebrews 11.1 when he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, what's being referred to here by Paul is a triumphant, a rejoicing confidence. We glory in hope. We rejoice in hope. We exult in hope. And what is that triumphant, rejoicing confidence rooted in? He says, the hope of the glory of God. Now, God's glory is what God is in his character, in his nature, even in his external appearance. That's what we would refer to when we're speaking of the glory of God. And in Hebrews 1.3, we see that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus Christ, in other words, he shines forth God's glory. He displays God's glory. He's the image of God's glory. And a major part of our hope, our future hope, is to be like Jesus Christ in every respect. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now that we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, we know that when he, meaning Jesus, appears, we will be like him, 
because we will see him just as he is. See, that's the hope of the glory of God. And it's a wonderful hope. You know, back in Romans 1, we saw this earlier, Paul spoke of those who would scorn God's glory. In Romans 3, we see that Paul says we've all fallen short of God's glory. But now in Romans 5, 2, he's saying there are going to be certain individuals who are promised this future hope of the glory of God. And we really see that coming to fruition, by the way. You can turn with me, if you will, to Romans 8, just a few pages over, where we see this idea of hope and future glory coming together. I'm going to start in verse 18 and read just a few verses here, Romans 8, 18, and just note how many times you you see the words hope and glory linked together. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In other words, this hope of the glory of God that we see in Romans 5 is an eschatological, meaning future-oriented reality. It's not a present-day possession. Uh, Not every benefit and promise associated with a Christian's salvation comes to full fruition today. No, we still await future glorification. We still await a future in which in our perfect and glorified bodies, we will more fully reflect Christ's glory, which we fall so short with now. That day's not here yet, though, so we eagerly anticipate this hope of glory. And by the way, that idea of the hope of glory, it's all over the New Testament. I'm going to read just a few verses here to give you some more orientation. Uh, Colossians 1.27 says, God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 3.4 says, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. One last one, 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are at peace with God because of Christ's finished work in the past. We stand in grace today because of his work on our behalf as our advocate and our mediator in the present, and we have no fear of the future because of this hope of glory. See, the Christian has a secure future, and we exult in this secure future because of Christ, who is our hope, and who not only is our hope, but as we've been seeing over the past few weeks, who is our peace. 
Well, yesterday on Christmas Eve, our nation's president, Joe Biden, sent out a tweet. It was like a a note to the nation through social media. And in this tweet, he said the following. He said, there is a certain stillness at the center of the Christmas story. A silent night when all the world goes quiet and all the clamor, everything that divides us, fades away in the stillness of a winter's evening. I wish you that peace this Christmas Eve. I'm not going to make a political statement, but other than betraying the fact that he has no idea what Christmas is all about, President Biden's message highlights the emptiness of any efforts to promise peace or to pursue peace or to find peace if those efforts aren't rooted in the right object. Contrary to the verbiage of our president's tweet, you won't find peace in the stillness of a winter's evening. You won't find peace when all the world goes quiet. You won't find peace even when all that divides us, as he says, in this world fades away. Rather, true peace is found exclusively in the finished work of the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, through which, as the hymn says, God and sinners are reconciled. I pray that today on Christmas Day that you will find great peace in knowing that you know God through Christ, the newborn King. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would love to chat with you and to talk with you my hangout in the South Lobby, my boys can, their presence can wait, right? We'll hang out here as long as we need to, to make sure that you know what it means to be made right with the God of the universe. And that this Christmas could be this day where you could celebrate for years to come, that you receive the greatest gift that's ever been given, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, okay? I'll be out there until they lock me out of here. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful morning of worship on Christmas Day, this chance to gather around your word and to sing these wonderful Christmas carols and to reflect and meditate on the true meaning of Christmas, that God and sinners have been reconciled through the peace of the blood of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do pray that for those of us who know you through Christ, that this would be a Christmas that brings us much joy and much wonder and much hope and anticipation of the coming return of our Lord and all that entails. But if there's anyone here this morning on Christmas Day who's lost and wayward, who's deceived, and who is willing to humble themselves and and acknowledge that they have been deceived and that they need to come to faith in Christ to have their sins forgiven, well, I pray that today, this Christmas Day, would be that day and that another soul would be added to your family. Thank you so much for sending your son into the world to die on our behalf. Thank you for that little baby in the manger who is the hope and savior of the world and in whose name we pray, amen.